Story time. Everybody, you love a story, right? Everybody loves a story. Let's have story time. So somewhere around 8, 900 BC, there was a country called Aram, A-R-A-M, that was immediately north of Israel. At that time in the history of Israel, uh, Israel had split into two. There was the southern tribe of Judah and the northern tribes that were called just for short, Israel. North of them was Aram, and Aram was on the rise where Israel was stumbling because of their unwillingness to obey and follow God. The king of Aram decided he was going to make a master move. He would create an ambush. He would lure the king of Israel with his army into the ambush, attack and kill them, and so render them practically defenseless so then he could now expand his territory and take more cities and more area than he had ever before. Three times he tried this ambush, but three times the king of Israel was told about the ambush and avoided the ambush, and so the king of Aram failed. Finally, after the third time, he turned to his success or his uh, advisors and said to them, who is the traitor? Who is telling the king of Israel about the ambushes that I'm setting? Who is it? And then one of the uh, advisors spoke up and said, uh, it's, not, it's none of us, but God tells the prophet Elijah, and he, he knows the very words you whisper in your room. It's Elijah the prophet. Well, the king says there's an easy solution for that. We simply need to get Elisha and take him out. That's where we pick the story up. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 18, as the enemy, that would be the king of Aram's army, came down toward him. Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. And so he struck them with blindness as Elijah had asked. Now, the blindness isn't that he couldn't see anything. They couldn't see anything. The blindness was they could see, but they could not perceive. They could see, but they didn't understand what they were seeing. And so Elijah told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Well, <laughs> they're coming for Elijah and he's standing in front of them. He has prayed his prayer and he said, yeah, uh, this is not the road, this is not the way, this is not the place you're going to find the guy you're looking for and they're talking to him. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. So he led them to Samaria. And after, so Samaria was the capital city. It's a big city with a lot of people. And after they entered the city, the king of Aram's army, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. And now the Lord opened their eyes. They looked and they were inside America. It's like waking up from a bad dream. You know when you're, you're, you're in a dream and you're running and, and you're, you're afraid, or actually it's the reverse, where everything's happy, you're laying on a beach, it's so wonderful, it's not freezing cold outside, and then you wake up and you look out the window and you see all the snow. Like, like it's that stark. They, they think they're traveling long and safe. They don't even see the city that they're walking into, and then when Elijah says, wake them up, they open their eyes and all of a sudden they're surrounded by buildings and people on both sides of them. Army on both sides of them. 
They're dead to rights. Well, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Because if I kill them, then we reverse the ambush. The ambush they tried to set on me is now going to be set on them. I will destroy the army and the king of Aram's army will be severely depleted and I'll have the upper edge and now I, I, we'll, we'll gain the upper hand and be able to take Aram. And then this is what Elijah says to him. Don't kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? So in war, do you kill the prisoners of war? No. Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away. They returned to their master. And so, here's the result. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Now that's the surprise I didn't expect in this story. That when they show mercy instead of violence, the cycle of conflict ends. Hmm. I think that could preach. Mercy, not violence. Mercy, not evil. Mercy, not payback, ends the cycle of violence. Interesting thought. The reason I told you the story is because as we're discovering and looking at David, who has, was called a man with a heart for God, that clearly illustrates the heart of David. That he was a man of mercy. Now mercy is never easy, and we're going to see that in our story, but it's always right. I'm going to tell you why it's always right. 1 Samuel 24, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. And so Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel, and he set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now, this area is called Engedi. And I got some bad pictures, but uh, do we have them? There, so hold it here. This is what surrounds Engedi. Now, I can get you a really good on, deal on some real estate if you would like to buy something. It's nothingness. It's barren, it's dusty, it's dirty, it's hot. I know, because I took this picture. But in Engedi, there's a stream that flows out near the top of the cliffs, and it flows out and kind of falls down. And on either side, see, there's the falling down. So sorry for the models. We couldn't really get uh, high-quality models, so you're stuck with that. And I just have to say, the rock is pushing my gut out. It's not, I'm really not that big. It's a rock, okay? But this is the, and you see the, the water falling down, and it, there's be pools, and then it overflow and fall down. And you can see some green, next picture, that's on either side of it. So, so it's kind of lush, but six feet, after six feet on either side of the water, it's just that dirt, barrenness, nothingness, for miles. And Getty comes up in the scripture, but it's a place not of, of uh, it is an oasis, but it's a place far away where, where people who are in danger would go because nobody's around there. And that's why David's there. But Saul hears about it. And uh, he comes after David because he wants to kill him. 
So Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Stop. If you ever wonder where God is at work, right there in that verse. Saul probably ate some street meat on the way there. He arrives. Don't worry, the lights will come back on sooner or later. He arrives uh, right at the sheep, this area of the sheep, uh, the crags of the sheep. And all of a sudden, his stomach is upset. Now, you know what that's like. I mean, you got a bad. You got, I, 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 I can't go any further. And, and so his stomach's upset, and he goes, I'm going to go into a cave and relieve myself. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Now, typically these caves, you'd walk from outside, you can't tell how big they are, and you'd walk in and sometimes they look like just a small area, and then there might be a small hole that you'd have to get down and crawl through, and then a huge cage behind, cave behind that, and I, I'm thinking that's what that's like, because Saul goes in, I'm sure he didn't back in like this, I'm, I'm positive he didn't do that, I'm, he walked in, but he doesn't see anybody, they're all hidden. And I suspect they're back, and way in the back, and they can see Saul come in, and he begins to relieve himself. And this is what his friends say to him. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. I don't know where that's quoted, but they seem to think that was quoted to David. And David crept up unnoticed, and he cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Why, David? Why, when God gives the man who's trying to kill you into your hands, puts him in a most vulnerable position, he doesn't even know you're behind him, and he, why is it you feel conscience-stricken? This is your chance. Now watch what comes out of David's heart. Remember, he's being hunted down to be killed. This is his chance to bring relief to him and his 600 men and their families. The Lord forbid I should do such a thing, for he is the anointed of the Lord. God put him in that place, who am I to take him out? Do you not respect the hand of God? Yeah, but, but look what he's doing to you. God put him in that place. God can take him out at his time. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. What David is saying is that who am I to take into my hands the right to take the life of one he has anointed? Who am I to treat him as he is treating me instead of treating him as God treats me? Stop and think about that. Who am I? Who am I to treat a person who hurts me with hurt instead of treating a person that hurts me the way God treats me? Because after all, I have hurt God. 
mercy. The recognition that I am to treat others as I have been treated by God, not treat others as they treat me. When I treat others as they treat me, the cycle of conflict continues. When I treat others as God treats me, the cycle of conflict ends. Now, sometimes mercy shows up in the most unusual places and teaches us some unusual lessons. And I've had that experience. Like you, I have some things to learn in life. And I've always had things to learn in life. And when I was in Bible school, uh, Mike was a friend of, it was an acquaintance. He really wasn't a friend so much as an acquaintance. Because he had friends who I was friends with. And so every once in a while we would touch base, we'd be around each other, but we weren't really close friends. So uh, I went on to a wedding of a fellow student along with a number of those common friends that we have, but Mike wasn't there. And while I was there, it you know, bothers me still today, but I got criticizing Mike for, I, I don't even remember what. So basically, to use the scripture word, I was slandering Mike while he wasn't there and going on about how bad he was. One of the friends, when we got back, told Mike, and Mike immediately came to me and said to me, Ed, did I do something wrong to you? Now, I was kind of surprised he would walk up to me and say, did I, like, I didn't have a clue anybody told him. And I was like, no, no, I, you didn't do anything to me. And then he goes, then why were you criticizing me this weekend? Caught. Well, you know, I gave the, well, yeah, well, you know, Mike, it wasn't really like that. It's like, I wasn't really sick. And here I am stumbling through trying to explain to him while I was, why I was criticizing him among all these friends when he wasn't there. <laughs> it got so bad, my explanation got so bad, finally I went, you know what? I was totally wrong. I, I, I couldn't even convince myself with my explanation, and I just stopped it and said, Mike, I am so sorry, I was totally wrong. And he said, okay, I forgive him, walked away. I never heard about that incident again. I didn't hear from him, I didn't hear it from any of the friends, I didn't hear anything. And so I, I think what happened is Mike confronted me about my behavior toward him and then just ended it there and didn't try to get me back, didn't, didn't go back to the friends, yeah, well I went and talked to him, Ed's such a jerk and da 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 da. He didn't do that, he just had mercy. Instead of paying me back the way I paid him, he just left it to God. And you know what? I'm still talking about that. I, the mercy shown to me, every time I start to get critical, my gut turns and I go, oh yeah, I remember. God, by the mercy Mike showed me, has continued to teach me, watch your mouth. Huh. Mercy not only ends the cycle of conflict between two people, it also can change the person that has done evil, sometimes. And that's what David does. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken, sorry, then David went out, verse eight, David went out of the cave and he called to Saul. So Saul walks down and uh, the cave, it sounds like was up a little bit and Saul walks back to his army and David comes out of the cave and it wouldn't have missed, people wouldn't have missed the fact that, oh, that was the same cave 
Saul just came out of. And David comes out and he yells out, my Lord the king, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground and he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? There's always somebody around that's gonna encourage evil. There's always voices in our lives that will want to prompt us to wrong ways of acting and thinking. You've seen it with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in this very cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at the piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe and I didn't kill you. See, there's nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting down to take my life. Now, the first thing David does, as Mike confronted me and then showed mercy, uh, confronting people is not lack of mercy. That's courage and righteousness. So as Mike uh, confronted me. So David confronts Saul. What have I ever done to you? I could have killed you and I didn't kill you. Why are you listening to people telling you that I'm out to get you? When I had my chance, I didn't. So the first thing David does is he confronts the wrongdoing. Now look at how mercy is described in these next I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Wow. You are doing me wrong. You're hunting me down. You're trying to kill me, but I'm not going to give you back what you're giving to me because from evildoers come evil deeds. Instead, I am going to entrust myself to God and let him deal with this. He is the righteous judge. He is the one that will deal with this. He put you in place. He can take you down. You're hunting me. He can stop you. I will trust him, not turn to evil against you. Now, you've got to admit, you're not going to get through this life without somebody doing something evil to you. People are going to lie about you. Some are going to try to manipulate you and maybe even succeed. Some will betray you, turn on you. Some people will double-cross you. Some people will take advantage of you. Some will abuse some may even attack physically. You're not going to get through life without evil happening to you. How are you going to respond to it? How will you respond? Because it hurts. It's not that the evil doesn't, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It hurts. But the question is, how will you respond? And David, like Elijah, responds, says, mercy is the response. And mercy is not, oh, well, I guess it'll be. Mercy is uh, uh, confronting the sin, but saying, I will now leave it to God to deal with this. 
That's what we're told, by the way, in 1 Peter. Now this, uh, we've been dealing with these stories, and so Saul says, yeah, I'm sorry. Hey, have mercy on me and my family, and he goes away. And David says, yeah, okay, no problem. I've entrusted you to God. And, and the story kind of ends. But we know these stories uh, have three kind of mean or points to them. Like the first is that they historically tell us about David, one of the greatest, if not the greatest king of Israel. And so they give details of his life and how God moved him from a shepherd boy into a king. And so there's historical account of the story. And we just kind of worked our way through it. But there's always, there's also David. Why David? Why not other kings? Why does David get so much real estate in the scriptures and other kings are just like a footnote? You hardly even hear about them. And it's not that they were so bad and David was the only good one. It's that David is a prototype or a, 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 he's foretelling what the coming Messiah will be like. God is using the life of David to teach his people what the Messiah is going to be like when he comes. And then finally, there's usually a moral principle or a guideline in these stories that we can use and take and apply to our own life. So I want to stop. We talked about David, but I want to show you how David is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Now, the thing about the Messiah, you can hear it in the apostles. They, they were all expecting the Messiah to come. They didn't immediately know Jesus was the Messiah. They came to that understanding. But they always was this expectation, when he comes, we're on board. When he comes, we're on board. We can hardly wait for the Messiah to come. When he comes, we're just going to jump into his, his army, and we're going to follow him, and he's going to take Israel to new heights, and we can hardly wait for him to come. That was the sense of expectation. But the reality is, is just as Saul, the one in power, resisted an attack, David, the anointed of God, so those in power, when Jesus comes, do what? The same thing. They resist and attack the Messiah who God has anointed. When the Messiah comes, he's not going to be warmly welcomed with open arms by everyone, in particular the people in power. You need to be prepared. God is foreshadowing, telling that when the Messiah comes, he will be attacked, he'll be resisted, he will be hated. In fact, they will call out, they will capture him, and they will falsely accuse him. They will take him to Pilate, who was the Roman governor, and who had authority in, in that, par that uh, area of Palestine, and they said, we want you to deal with him, and Pilate said, well, I don't find any charge in him. Kill him. What should I do with this, your king? We have no king but Caesar. We do not recognize God's calling on him. And how did Jesus respond? There's a little bit of a, in one of the gospels, when they come to arrest him, Peter pulls out his sword and cuts the ear off the high priest's servant. And Jesus tells them to stop. And then one of the writers records this. Do you not know? I could call 12 legions of angels right now and end this. Like 12 angels could do a, a real deal. 12 legions is... 60,000 plus. This is not an issue of me giving back to them what they are giving to me. I didn't come for that. This is an issue of mercy 
First Peter chapter 2, verse 23, or 21 to 23, if I could have it on the screen. When they, to this you were called, there, there's a little foreshadowing for us this morning, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You should be like him, do what he did. Well, what did he do? He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, and when they hurled their insults at them, he didn't retaliate, and when they attacked him and he suffered, he didn't make threats. What did he do? Mercy. Instead, he entrusted to him who judges justly. That's Jesus being an example for us. When wrong comes our way, yes, we may need to confront it, but it's not our job, regardless of what Hollywood tells us. It's not your job nor mine to get even with the people that hurt us, to get them back. Now we have a variety of ways of getting people back. I know, because I do the same thing. Talk bad about them. I won't go to them and talk, but I'll talk about them. Or I'll retreat from them, avoid them, ignore them. Or I might do something to undermine them at work. Give them a bad review. Cut them out of the group. Reject them. Whatever I can think of, I will respond with evil toward their evil toward me. And Jesus' example, David's example, Jesus' example is no mercy. Mercy. And mercy is not, oh well, I'll just forget about it. Mercy is, I will entrust them and the hurt that they have done to me to God. And I will entrust him to deal with it. Because he is the only judge that can perfectly deal with the situation. And that, my friends, requires incredible faith. But look what they did. Look how they hurt me. Uh-huh. Look at Jesus. And his was mercy. I will entrust myself and the situation to God and let him work it out. Same thing David did. I will entrust myself to God. You know, sometimes your kids don't need to be in an illustration, so I won't tell. <laughs> I was going to tell an illustration, but I'm not. I back out. Okay, I get it. The example of David, the example of Jesus, the command of Peter, pretty clear. I'm supposed to be a person of mercy. But how? I mean, it's one thing, Ed, for you to say it up there. But you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how they hurt me. You don't know how they betrayed me. You don't know how they attacked me. How do I show mercy to people like that? Well, we already see in both situations, both David and Jesus' situation, that confronting the person about the evil isn't a lack of mercy. That's the truth part. Of course, it depends how you confront the person. 
can confront a person to try to get back at them, or you confront a person and say, we're broken, and you've done wrong to me, and this needs to be fixed. That's two different worlds, two different attitudes. I think it's the second one that Jesus wants us to exercise. But then what do you do if they don't want to talk to you? They don't want to reconcile. They're happy they did to you what they did. What do we do then? Well, the reality is, is you have to live with that hurt, right? And mercy says you take that hurt and you give it to God every time it becomes filling you up in your mind and you're starting to get anxious, you're starting to think about it, you're starting to churn on the inside because of the words they said, betrayal that they did, the attack that they did, the evil that they did, and you churn inside. That's when you decide to have mercy and you say, God, take this. You might have to do that five, six times a day initially. God, here's what they did. You take it. And Jesus, what did he tell us to do in his greatest, in his greatest sermon? Pray for your enemies. Pray for God to open their heart, to help them see God, to help them see truth, to, to, for God to even bless them, for God to help them grow in their knowledge of God and understanding of God or come to God, to pray for good and clarity and truth in their life. That's the first thing, pray. Now, of course, you won't want to. But isn't that called discipline? When we make ourselves get up and go to work each day, and we don't always feel like that, but we do it because it's discipline. To, to exercise. We don't, who feels like exercising? There's a few weird people that do, but who feels like it? I think they, they tell me if you do it enough, you actually get to the point where you enjoy it. It's been a lot of years. I'm, I'm, I'm still, I haven't got there. But discipline says do it. Do what is right. Discipline puts that extra piece of cake down. And discipline says, I know mercy is right, and so I'm going to start praying and giving this to you. I'm going to pray for the person that I'm so hurt by, so angry at, so that I don't become an evildoer, returning evil. Here's the other thing Jesus says in that sermon. He says, pray for them. The other thing he says, do good. Oh. Oh. You had to say it, didn't you? Do good. Do good to those who spitefully hurt you. Oh, so now I've got to pray for them and then I've got to do good. Uh-huh. Well, that's the, that's the pattern of Jesus toward those who attacked him. He would confront them, but he would pray for them and hand them over to God and then he would do good for them. If you consider dying on a cross to pay for their sins so they can be reconciled to God, good, well then he did good for them. And so as Jesus acted, so he calls us to act. Now, I know you can't avoid walking in this world and not get hurt for people not to do evil to you. You've, it's happened to you. I know it's happened to you. Multiple times. 
How are you treating them? How are you responding? Is there mercy? Or are you becoming more bitter, more angry, more filled with malice? Because you haven't let go. You haven't given mercy and let them go to God and let God deal with it. God says that he is the ultimate judge. He will deal with all this. But are you willing to trust him? Now that's a choice you have to make. And the name and the face or the situation that's going through your mind or has been going through your mind as I've been talking, that's the one that God, the Holy Spirit, is saying, I want you to deal with it like that guy is saying. But it's your choice. Let's pray. So Jesus, today, uh, the call, the life of David is amazing, that he had such, he didn't have all the Bible that we have. He didn't have the, the, <laughs> he didn't have the example of Jesus to turn to. He just knew you and he knew your character and he knew that mercy was the right thing. But we have Jesus. We have his example. We have his commands and we have his uh, trust that he will, he will deal with all things if we trust them to him. And so would you help us to be a people of mercy? Let us entrust to you the things and the hurts and the pains that have been done to us or one of our family members. The evil, the unfairness, the hurt. We entrust to you and we wait on you to deal with that. We let it go. You're the judge, not us. You know everything. You know their heart. You know ours. You know the situation. And now help us to do good to be people of good works, not evil. Because we want to honor you. We want to live in a way that exalts and shows Jesus in our world. And this is one way. Free us from the bitterness and the malice and the hurt and the anger that we carry because of the hurts done to us. And soften our hearts to understand the hurt we have done to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's.